Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all uh, this morning. I am really looking forward to our um, conversation this morning from Isaiah chapter 35. You may actually want to turn there because we're going to go further than the text uh, went that we read together. We're actually going to look at the whole chapter together. But before we do that, I just want to um, uh, remind you of what's coming for this fall. This is the second to last week of our random excerpts, which is basically me getting to talk about whatever I want to. And now I'm going to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, what God wants to say to us through the book of Genesis, the last piece of it. We've already looked at the first couple of sections of Genesis, and we're going to start with the life of Joseph and walk all the way through it. And one of the themes that is, will be clear there is a theme of courage. And we will look at profiles of courage along the way. And I'm actually going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to look around in our uh, church family and um, uh, try to notice uh, people whose lives you've seen uh, characterized by extraordinary courage. And I would love for you to send me an email and tell me about somebody. Just, just brag about them on a way you've seen them live courageously in the midst of particular circumstances. So my email is mseverson, and Severson is all E's. It's the Norwegian Danish rather than the Swedish. My apologizing, uh, apologies to those of you that S-O-N's, my S-E-N. mseverson at hillcrestcub.org. I would love to get an email uh, from you uh, recommending or talking about someone who you've seen exhibit a life of great courage. And maybe we'll share some of those with the congregation as a whole. We're now going to go to Isaiah chapter 35. And as we uh, look there, would you please pray with me as we begin our time in God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to open a text that's thousands of years old. And rather than dust from the pages, that we actually um, can, uh, can be transformed by it. Lord, you say that when we open your Word and when we study it, you actually do surgery in our hearts and minds. That your word is as a, as a knife that goes deep into our lives and, and does what is necessary for us to be um, to, and to live the way you have for us. And so, God, I pray for that. I pray for strength and clarity for me and for each of us that you would speak uh, into our lives and we would be open to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In uh, the screen behind me, you will see uh, what is a desert. This is actually the Sahara Desert. And uh, it is a mass on the north part of Africa and into the Middle East that is some 2.6 million square acres of desert. I mean, in so many ways, so completely barren. You've probably seen pictures of it. There are the stereotypical pictures of sand dunes and all of that, but there are a variety of ways that the desert presents itself in, 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 in its entirety. That 2.6 million miles actually eclipses the landmass of the United States. It is that massive. Can you imagine traveling from one end of the United States to another and all you see is barren, absolutely barren desert? Well, that's what we see along there. You can see a little pocket of green in the north of Egypt uh, where, the, uh, uh, um, where the Nile flows into the Mediterranean, and you see some vegetation around it. Actually, in Egypt, they have worked hard on desert reclamation. Uh, and scientists and uh, geologists have tried to figure out how they could possibly uh, do it. But you're fighting against a desert where the temperatures are often 136 degrees. 
Isn't that amazing? Uh, and uh, so Egypt has, uh, had scientists looking at technology to try to reclaim the desert. And they have discovered along the way that it's expensive, incredibly expensive, complicated. You're dealing with soils and uh, changing in soils and all of the other elements that come with it along the way. And something that happens with great energy bit by bit. Their success is measured in square acres uh, and in a place that is that massive, uh, it is a slow process. In fact, in Egypt, more than 90% of the country is desert, and they're trying to progressively take it back. In contrast, we read in Isaiah 35 about the reclamation of a desert that is absolutely extraordinary. We see, described, the whole cloth reversal of a desert. So, you would imagine the first readers that looked at this story, this description of a desert being completely, totally, and thoroughly uh, 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 reclaimed, uh, must have just marveled at the possibility of something like that, because that's where they lived. And for us, who live where we are, it's virtually impossible for us to completely understand the extraordinary impact that this would have had. But I'm going to ask you to try this morning. Let's try to imagine what it would be like for us to read this through the eyes of those that actually live in places like that. And there are a couple things that I want us to focus our attention on this morning that we read about in Isaiah 35. And the first one is this. We discover that God is actually invested in desert reclamation. He is invested in desert reclamation. We see in Isaiah 35 the essential disappearance, the complete disappearance of a desert. It says in verse 1, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And this reclamation is more than the description of springtime in the desert when there are a few flowers that appear. The description actually is not that there will be crocus that appear, and you can see a picture of uh, one on the screen behind me, but that the desert will be the crocus. Not that it will be occupied by it, but that's a description of what the desert will become. It will become this crocus in bloom, and this crocus will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The desert will actually rejoice greatly and shout for joy, not because it's springtime, but because the desert has been completely reclaimed. How do we know that? The descriptions that are used that follow it. It talks about Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon. The characteristics of Lebanon, they would know. They're characteristics of a place with forests. Do you remember that description of the forests of Lebanon? This is consistent, sustained, over time, transformation so that trees can actually grow in that place. This transformation is enduring. It's not just a blip in the springtime. It becomes a place where cedars grow. And then we go to the other descriptor, and it is of Carmel. And Carmel was known to be a fruitful place where agriculture would put plants in rows, and they could, they could grow and develop, and it would bear fruit that this would be a place not only uh, that was enduring in terms of trees, but it would be a fruitful place where people's lives could be nourished as a result of what was true of the land. And then Sharon, which has always been described 
as a place of absolute beauty. <laughs> and so you see what's happening here? This reclamation is a reclamation, a whole cloth reclamation. And it's a reclamation that is characterized by endurance over time, by fruitfulness for the people that live there, and by beauty that marks the place that used to be absolutely desert. And so we ask the simple question, okay, where is the place? Can you just show it to me, please? What does it look like? Where is it found? And as we look at the text, we realize that what God is talking about here is he's talking about places and lives that are desert-like, that are characterized by scarcity of the most essential things necessary for life. There are actually places like that, and there are actually lives like that. And we've heard of them. Perhaps we've even experienced them ourselves. All along, he continues to remind us, Isaiah does, does of desert, the desert's devastating impact. There's the aspect of what it's like. Remember what it's like before the crocus bloom? It was like a crocus. And in verses 6 through 7, we see that. It is a wilderness. It doesn't have, it doesn't have the things that are necessary for the sustaining of life. It is burning sand, it says, parched ground occupied by dangerous animals that uh, live there. That's what it's like. And you can imagine that there's, uh, there's not much uh, uh, hope for the people that are living there. And those people are described in verse 3 as those who are characterized by a feebleness and inability to actually even move very easily. And beyond that, verse 4, by deep-seated fear, brokenheartedness actually because of the injustice all around them. And then it continues on to say, not only are they feeble and fearful, but they're actually blind and deaf and lame and mute. What does that mean? Those terms are essentially descriptors of people who cannot manage to live on their own. On their own. They actually will need another person alongside of them in order for them to manage. A person who's blind needs somebody else. A person who's mute needs somebody else. So that's what we see in these desert places, in these places of wilderness. People like this may literally be blind, deaf, lame, and mute, but it's more than that. They are people for whom it is necessary that someone would come and help them. You live in a place like that, guess what? You are not going to be able to continue to live unless someone comes along and helps you with it. They won't rescue themselves from the desert. When a person finds themselves in a place of scarcity like that, they will not be able to rescue themselves. That's the place that Isaiah is describing. It is also the place that he describes as being reclaimed and the circumstances completely restored. Lives like this, we know about lives like this in places in the world completely inhospitable to human flourishing. And they're not just deserts. They're deserts of scarcity of the things necessary for life. Completely inhospitable to human flourishing. And Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. I have come in order that your life might be characterized by flourishing. 
and we say, wow, there are places that are anything like that. There are people's lives that have experienced nothing like that as well. And we recognize some of the evil one's tools, some of Satan's tools in creating deserts. These are deserts where leaders choose to selfishly prey on anybody they can control. There are places where there is no access to literacy, which in our world is the on-ramp to being able to live in the world with any possibility of moving forward. Places where there is no access to or limited access to food or medical help or basic education. This is what the evil one does. He creates places of scarcity, places where there is no knowledge of the Lord, where there is no clue that the God who made them actually is a God of grace and power and transformation. That he can actually change places and change lives so that a life can be characterized by endurance and by fruitfulness and by beauty along the way. This is what God wants to do. He is invested in desert reclamation. Then we go to the second part of this uh, chapter and we see it in the extension of what we read earlier in verse 8 and following and we discover this. God is not only invested in desert reclamation, he also is invested in road construction. Look with me at verse 8. And a highway will be there, Isaiah says, and it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. We discover that in the midst of this desert, there is a highway. That God puts a highway there in the middle of scarcity. And the highway is occupied by people that travel it. And they're described as people of holiness. Now this word holiness, Isaiah uses over and over again as the fundamental aspect of who God is. He is holy. Completely other. Completely other in a beautiful, remarkable, good kind of way. And he says, this God of holiness, that there will be people of holiness. And we realize this. Those who travel along this road are devoted to God. That's how it's described here. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But understand this. The people on the road aren't holy because they're really good at being good. It's because they've been changed by the one who makes people good. You see, I mean, we know this. We know that it's true that our relationship with God isn't found, uh, isn't based on our own ability to be good or to try hard. That's not who's being described here. All the people that are really, really um, um, compliant or, or working really hard at, at trying to be better people, we know that that's not what God is about. In fact, it describes it right here. This holiness doesn't come through personal attempts to be good. It comes instead because there is one who ransoms people's lives. 
In verse 10, you'll see that in some translations it says rescue as well too. But it describes this God who pays a ransom for people. And when the ransom is paid, then they walk the way of holiness. Then they become holy. The ransom describes what God did in sending his son to die on the cross for us. A ransomed person is a person who is captive and needs to be rescued and so ransom is paid in order that they might be released from the prison that they're in and this is the way frankly our lives can be described apart from God's grace in us the 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 mess that we find ourselves in because we decide to go our own way rather than his and God comes along and he says I want you I want you back and I will pay the price I will pay the price so that you can again come back to me in all of my holiness. You can live in my presence. And so there's this aspect of who we are, those that need a ransom paid for us. But there's also another aspect to it. And it's the character of who he is. Because you'll see another word used here. It's used in verse 9, actually. It says this, but only the redeemed will walk in, in the way. And this isn't the same word being used, used twice. Ransomed is a reference to the character of who we are. Redeemed is a reference to the character of who he is. The word redeemed is a remarkable word, actually. The stress of that word is on the person of the redeemer. And describes his relationship with us and his intervention for us. The word redeemer is actually a technical term for the next of kin. There's a relationship here. The reason why he pays a ransom is because he's a redeemer. To be a redeemer means that he's related to us. He considers us his sons and daughters. The technical term is a next of kin who has the right to take his helpless relative's needs on as his own. It's a relative who sees another relative absolutely helpless, blind, lame, mute, who sees a relative in a situation where help is necessary in order for that person's life to go on. And he makes the choice, and it is a choice. It is a right to redeem rather than an inescapable duty. But what we see here is a God who calls us his own, who made us to be his sons and his daughters. And because of his relationship with us, has the right, but more than that, has the desire to do whatever it takes to bring us to himself because we're his kids. And you see the character of what God is like in this. We see a God who is a holy God. But more than that and beyond that, he is a gracious father, a gracious kinsman. He makes us holy and he puts us on the road. And because he's done it, we're characterized, it says in the text, by gladness and joy. What a story this is. We just simply say yes to God, and he comes in, pays the price, changes our life, and puts us in a road, and we are characterized by gladness and rejoicing. And you say, wait, now, 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 wait a minute, I think I just heard somewhere else in Isaiah 35 
someplace else that was characterized by gladness and rejoicing. You're right. The people on the path are characterized by gladness and rejoicing. But the desert is also characterized by gladness and rejoicing. Do you see? There's a connection here. And this is it. The road is the reason for the reversal. When it's, how did the desert get transformed? The way it did was because there was a road through it. The road is the reason for the reversal. In fact, in the original language, in verse 1, it actually says this. My translation doesn't pick it out and bring it back to the English. But let me tell you what it literally says. The desert and the parched land will be glad of them. That is literally what it says. The desert and the parched land will be glad of them. Who is the of them? The of them in the text is those that are walking the way, the, the, the road that God put through the desert. The road through the desert, characterized by those of us that are walking on it, changes the desert. And streams in the desert are created because people changed by God are walking in the desert. And the people changed by God, because of the road through the desert, are actually changing the desert. Road construction has an environmental impact. Road construction has an environmental impact. It changes the things around it. In fact, God says that when he leads his people through desert places, streams, streams spring up in the desert. Last week we talked about God's intention for the church uh, to be holy. And it's just really simple. You can strip away all the programs and it is basically about this. God wants us to be disciples. Simply means to be those that learn and understand and are characterized by the traits of God. Disciples that make disciples that make disciples. It is as simple as that. For us to be disciples, engaged in making disciples who are also passionate about making disciples and you can put all sorts of programs around a church but but in its most clear form the church is simply about you and i choosing to be a disciple invested in making disciples who will be invested in making disciples simple as that here we learn about god's intentions for the world and it is this to take those disciples, making disciples, making disciples, and put them on a road that takes them through deserts. Where all around them, there is scarcity. And those deserts will be changed because God is present in our lives. Not perfectly. But He is present. And even in the midst of our mistakes along the way, he changes the world. God brings his character to the desert. And it changes the desert because it's changed us. We talk about the gospel in terms of God being good and beautiful. And that is who he is. We see it from day one in the garden in Genesis 1. He is good and he is beautiful. And he occupies our hearts. And we discover that in our lives he creates goodness and beauty. And so he walks us, created uh, by a God who is good and beautiful, transformed into goodness and beauty through a desert 
And that goodness and beauty spills out of us and people in the world see for the first time most clearly the character of who God is because God's people go there. Let me just tell you a story and share a couple reference points. John McKenzie, he was, a, he was an Englishman who was passionate about God's passion for the world. And in the 19th century, I know this is a long time ago, but in the 19th century, he felt God's call to the southernmost regions of Africa. He became a missionary. He was an evangelical missionary, really no different than you or me. Only he felt like God had called him to go to a place like that. And he arrived there and fell in love with the people that were part of that southern part of Africa. And he discovered in the midst of it that he was not the only one that was going there, but there were white settlers that were going there as well too, threatening actually to take over the native land. I mean, it was a beautiful place. They saw it and they wanted it. And they had power and influence and they were acquiring land that belonged to other people. And Mackenzie saw this, and he determined that something should be done about it. And so he took with him back to England one of his friends who, was, who, 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 who had lived there. And he brought him back to England and talked to a variety of people about this injustice that was taking place and this takeover of a people who had no ability to fend for themselves. And he eventually arranged a meeting for himself and this friend of his from southern area of Africa to speak to the queen. And then an extraordinary thing happened. Through his story and, and the repercussions of that, England was convinced to enact a law. There was a land protection agreement for the people in that place. And that place became Botswana. And people have said that without that, without that trip from Botswana to England by John McKenzie and his friend, that nation would not likely exist today. And if you look at Wikipedia for Botswana, you'll discover this, that it was once one of the poorest countries in the world. And today, it is characterized by stable, enduring democracy and has become actually one of the world's fastest growing economies. Helping, helping many people in that nation to find places of significance and flourishing. And how did it happen? Somebody just like you and me, with our same passions went to that place to tell them about Jesus and noticed something that needed to be changed. You know, this isn't just one, one data point. Actually, the data points are almost countless. There's a person who has tried to develop that. His name is um, uh, Robert Woodbury. And uh, in, a, in a, actually a magazine article that references a journal article, actually a, a pretty in-depth, remarkably in-depth journal article in a notable review, um, is summarized in Christianity Today in the January and February issue, and it's called, the cover is, The World the Missionaries Made. And what happened for Woodbury is this, in search of answers to find out what is this ongoing significant, uh, significance of missions in the world, he traveled to West Africa in 2001. 
And he set out one morning on a dusty road in Loam, the capital of Toga. Now get that. This is the capital of Toga. And the road he set out out on was a dusty road along the way. And then he went to the University of Togo's campus library and he discovered there shelves that held about half as many books as he had in his own library in his study back home. I mean, this is a university. And it's got half of the books that he actually has in his own personal library. The most recent encyclopedia he discovered was dated 1977. Now, that was a good year. But it was a long time ago. And then down the road, he went to the campus bookstore and found out that they sold primarily pens and papers and not books. And so he stopped the student along the way and he said, where do you buy your books? And the student says, oh, we don't buy books. The professors read the text out loud to us and we transcribe them. Now here's the thing that's interesting. Just across the border, the University of Ghana is. And it's not that far away. I mean, there is not much different fundamentally in terms of geography, lamas, all that. There's just, there's just a border between those two places, the University of Toga and the University of Ghana. But he went to the University of Ghana just a short way, bit away, and he saw this. He saw floor-to-ceiling shelves lined with hundreds of books, including locally printed texts by local scholars. Total contrast. What made the difference? This is what Woodbury discovered. During the colonial era, there were British missionaries that went to Ghana, and they had established a system of schools and printing presses. Guess who went to Togo? France did. And they severely restricted missionaries, contrary to what the Brits did. In fact, the French authorities took interest in educating only small intellectual elite. My apologies to those of you whose heritage is French. But do you see what they did? They said there will be minimal influence of any missionaries in what we're doing. And today, more than 100 years later, education in Toga is still limited. In Ghana, just a stone's throw away, it is absolutely flourishing along the way. And Woodbury began to say, is this Is this anecdotal evidence? And he went on from there to do more and more study. And there's something else that he discovered along the way. As he compiled this in nations all over the world, he says this, areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women. In short, he says this, do you want a blossoming society that is characterized by human flourishing? The solution is simple. In any region of the world, this is what you do. You need a time machine, and you need to send a 19th century missionary back there. And 100, 150 years later, you will find human flourishing. Because somebody whose heart was devoted to God said, I want to go to that place and I want to live out as best I can the realities of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, we know the stories too. Poisonwood Bible, right? And, and, and those stories are real. And we can tell stories where missionaries basically were uh, 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 colonial tools and where they distorted things and, and, and did things that we, 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 we lament over today. But Woodbury says this, 
we don't have to deny that there were and are racist missionaries. We don't have to deny that there were and are missionaries who do self-centered things. But if that were the average effect, we would expect the places where missionaries had influence to be worse than places where missionaries weren't allowed or were restricted in action. We find exactly the opposite on all kinds of outcomes. Even in places where few people converted, missionaries had a profound impact on the societies that they were a part of. You see, this is what God does through his people. He describes missionaries that weren't paid by the government or major organizations to be there, but simply by people who had a passion that that would happen in those places. In fact, one person says this, few missionaries were in any systemic way social reformers. They didn't go there to reform a society. They weren't primarily social reformers. I think, the professor says, they were first and foremost people who loved other people. They cared about other people. They saw that they'd been wronged, and they wanted to make it right. It is as simple as that. God ransoms us because he's a redeemer. And he changes us. And he sends us on a path called the way of holiness. Not because we're so great, but because he's incredible. And along that path, goodness and beauty spills out of us. And streams appear in deserts. And people rejoice and they shout for joy. That's it. That's it. Deserts are transformed by God through people devoted to God. It happens all over the world. Deserts are transformed by God through people devoted to God. The Christian life is meant to be lived as a journey through deserts. And so as a church, we have got to be so incredibly grateful for people before us who had the foresight to grasp this and the determination to make sure we as a church would invest in this. Sometimes we say, oh, that's just so much money. We could be using it for other purposes. And, and, and we have to say after we hear something like this, there's no purpose more significant than that. That we could do that around the world. In fact, we can actually do it in places of scarcity right here near us as well. But it's what God has called us to do. And so we invest in sending our young people to deserts, to places of scarcity. And we do it not to round out their education. I mean, it can actually be reduced to that, can't it? I want my kids to get a well-rounded global education. And that's not why we do it. We send our young people to those places because we want to see the world changed. That's it. We want the world changed. 
We want those deserted places to be characterized by streams in the desert. And my deepest longing for young people is that there will be our kids that are coming back from those places and say, someday I'm going to live in that desert. Others come back and say, I'm going to find deserts right here. And I'm going to live my life around those places, in those places. That it won't simply be something characterized by an occasional field trip. I'm going to live there. And as a church, we just continue from, God, thank you for those who went before us that decided we would invest. I think in the last 12 years since I've been here, I, I, I think this church has invested close to $10 million of resources out in places like that. And I couldn't be more grateful for the people before us that inspired us to do it. And even the founders of this church, they were inspired by churches and organizations way before we were ever on the scene that knew the same thing about God's plan for the world, to build roads in deserts and to live in those places. Let me just give you a couple, exam a couple opportunities for pra practical applications to it. One is find a desert. Find one. Find a place of scarcity. Uh, maybe you can go down to Mission Adelante. We're invested down there, and there are people from our church that are invested down there. In fact, some of the people from our church actually moved to that area of Kansas City. They're actually living in that place, and streams are, 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 are uh, springing up in the desert. And you don't have to go down there. Don't go down there to change the world. Go down there to live, to be there, even if it's an hour a week or a couple of hours a week. Go down there, and guess what? God will, because he, he has transformed your heart, he'll break your heart. You don't even have to work on it. You don't even have to try hard. He transformed your heart. He will break your heart, and he will fill your heart with passion. And you will discover something like John McKenzie discovered that is broken in the midst of you letting people know about God's grace and love and forgiveness. You'll see things that God also wants to change along the way. Come with me and others from Macedonia to uh, uh, go naive Haiti. Uh, be involved in this neighborhood or the neighborhood that you're in. As we conclude, there are just a couple things. I, I hope you are so incredibly encouraged by the, the people who came before us in this church family and said, we will be about the reclamation of deserts for the glory of God. And the second thing is, is to find a desert and, and travel through it and live in it. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your plan, for your longing for us and for the world. And pray, Lord, for streams and deserts all over this city, all over this country, all over the world. God, give us a clear sense of what your call is to us as individuals.